1: Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Today's the day that will live forever in solemnity. That's how I always feel whenever we try to commemorate what happened in the Twin Towers at the Pentagon and on Flight 93. No matter how good the stock market might be, I'd up 114 points today, S&P advancing 0.37, NASDAQ gaining 0.61%. This is always going to be a somber day for you and for me. Two years ago, we ran a special about the rebirth of commerce around Ground Zero in downtown Manhattan. And while it was far from joyous, it really showed the incredible spirit of the American people. We, it just wouldn't let the terrorists stop us from rebuilding. These days, though, I have a new worry. It's a worry that there's a whole generation of people who really, uh, I don't know if they'll ever understand the the visceral grim horror of what occurred that day. I mean, I I wish there was a National Day of Remembrance in this country where schools could teach a class on what happened using the materials from the unbelievable museum at Ground Zero. Older people, you need to remember. Younger people, you must learn. There's a second terrible anniversary today, too, just about money, though. It's the 10th anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And while that carnage was purely financial, it still ended up hurting millions of Americans. This time, CNBC's own Andrew Ross Sorkin has put together a terrific documentary about those dark days. That's tomorrow's business. Don't get me wrong. There's no comparing the collapse of Lehman with the physical darkness of 9-11, as those of us who nearby escaped in what felt like a night full of sleet on that terrible day when the sun was out. Sleep that turned out to be the remnants of God only knows what. That said, the Lehman anniversary marks a time when the country itself was under financial siege, when it felt like we might be slipping into a repeat of the Great Depression, with giant banks collapsing under the weight of their own greed and foolishness. Meanwhile, first the authorities stood by and let it all happen, because the government was just as unprepared as the bankers. The irony of Lehman collapsing seven years to the day after the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers should not be lost on anyone. It's almost the reverse of what happened in the 30s and 40s, where first we had the Depression and then we had Pearl Harbor. You could argue we learned nothing from either of these events. Otherwise, we might have prevented both 9-11 and the financial crisis. But I think maybe being unprepared for disaster is sort of the American way. And that's because, we see, we have an innate sense of optimism, an indomitable spirit. I like both of those. So it's hard to convince ourselves that things can go very, very wrong, and we need to get out ahead of it. That said, I think we're much better prepared for both terrorist attacks and financial failures these days. We just don't know what the next calamity is actually going to look like. Now, on the anniversaries of catastrophic events, you tend to be very gloomy in your analysis. On top of that, you've got a lot of people who tend to be very downbeat every day because they have an overly skeptical view of the stock market. So all day today, I heard about what could cause the next big decline. Will it be the rise in high yield debt? Will it be the collapse of the emerging markets? How about a further escalation, escalation of the trade wars? Are we in the seventh inning of the economic expansion or maybe the eighth? Well, these are all legitimate questions, and I know they have to be asked. Most of the logical benchmarks suggest that the expansion can't last much longer, especially since President Trump's playing hardball with pretty much all of our trading partners, Canada, Europe, China. But you know what almost never gets asked? What would happen if things keep going right? Because I got to tell you, if you take your cue from the stock market, it's predicting that things are going to be fine. More on that later. Still, I want to address the strength and weaknesses of this economy head on using tonight's guests, AMD, Toll Brothers, and NXP Semiconductors.
0: Three com- this CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com slash apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com slash apps.
1: These are very representative of what could go right, but also what could go wrong. AMD is a stock that's rallied 192% year-to-date. Now, many of the 7 stocks were down today, but not this one. Why? End markets. AMD's become a powerful player in personal computers, which are enjoying a renaissance, gaming, which is insanely hot, and data centers, which are growing like crazy. Why? because of the rise of cloud computing. In fact, AMD and NVIDIA are the two chip makers most intertwined with the the growth of all this cloud-based software. And and look, last week when Workday got slammed after allegedly reporting a weak quarter, I told you this group would roar back to life, which is exactly what's happening now. Of course, AMD's locked in some real battles with Intel and NVIDIA, but I think there's room enough for all of them. In short, AMD's part of the tech uh, renaissance. That's hard to deny. And even harder for investors to bail on, no matter how much they expect experts fret about how the bull market is getting long in the tooth. Next up is a different kind of chip maker from AMD, though. It's NXP Semi. NXP makes chips for cars and the Internet of Things, among others. It almost got acquired by Qualcomm, which was trying to diversify away from wireless chips because that business seemed to be tapped out. Two years ago, when it was proposed, the logic of that deal made so much sense. Now, though, the autos have become one of the weakest parts of the global economy. We just aren't making as many as we thought we would be at this point with the economy growing. We don't even seem to know why. Could it be Uber? Student debt? Whatever the cause, something's wrong, and the auto stocks, especially Ford, reflect that weakness. So investors worry that is selling into an ugly end market that keeps getting hammered. Because these de- Could these declines be a mistake given the auto-, auto industry is really a worldwide industry? Maybe we're being too ethnocentric. We've got to find out, and we can't do without talking with the CEOs. Finally, there's housing. I can't remember a time when the homebuilders were better positioned than they are right now. They benefited enormously from our country's rapid job growth. Few homebuilders are doing better than Toll Brothers, which is poised to put up its highest full-year revenue in the company's history. Yet, they're doing better than they were even during the housing bubble. Sure, mortgage rates are rising although they've kind of leveled off, but that doesn't seem to impact demand. The supply of houses remains very tight. At long last, millennials have started moving out of their parents' basements and they're buying their own homes. Yet, the stocks of the homebuilders have been just plain awful. The Stock Brothers is down nearly 24% for the year, meaning it's d- doing just a hair's breadth better than Ford, which is, well, also down about 24%. These two areas, autos and housing, represent a gigantic part of the U.S. economy. Autos aren't all domestic, of course, as I, and I've said over and over again that I fear tariffs on American cars and trucks in Europe. I do think NXP, the largest supplier of chips to the automakers, will give us a good read on the industry later tonight. How about housing? Look, if cars were the lone weak spot in the economy, I could deal with it. But the terrible performance of the housing stock signals that the group could be headed into a downturn. And when it comes to the broader economy, as I always say, housing punches well above its weight. So let me give you the bottom line here, both cautious and gloomy but also optimistic if you can have all of those together in one packet. Stay tuned, and we're going to hear from AMD, NXP, and Toll Brothers after the break. They'll tell us why cloud computing has become one of the strongest businesses around, while autos and housing appear to be the Achilles heel of the stock market, if not the economy. I see a lot to like in this stock market. But until I get more comfortable with housing and autos, I see the retailers and the cloud kings as the best stocks for capital appreciation. Let's go to Jeff, my old home state of Pennsylvania. Jeff hey jim my question is about symbol opko in the midst of the uh, alleged pump and dump scheme by the ceo Philip frost and the freeze of the trading of the stock what would you recommend to do and does this affect the operations of the company this was stunning to me Uh, county irregularities equals sell we the stock is not open Uh, we need to know more about the sec charge uh, look, they don't pick those names out of the phone book, and, and this reads very, very bad, but you're, not, you, you're innocent uh, 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 until you're proven guilty in our country, so I need to know more. I would, of course, love to hear from Phil Frost, but this was very, very discouraging, and it does seem like what you said, a pump-and-dump case. Sad. Let me, it certainly didn't need to happen. He's a very rich man. Let's go to Nicholas in Connecticut, please. Nicholas. Hey, Jim. from calling from Florida. But let me right. give you a bu 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 from the United States Navy. I'll take that, hey. and thank you for serving. What's up?
2: All right, yeah, I called about a company that's on the Goldman Sachs conviction list, disrupting incumbents like VMware, beating earnings, acquiring companies left and right, growing that accelerated clip, and just announced their largest ever contract of $20-plus plus million yesterday. That company's is Nutanix. Here's my question. Why has the stock been range bound since March, and where do you see this? Okay, best the stock's up 50%.
1: When I did my uh, Cloud King analysis, the average stock of the Cloud King group is indeed up 50%. It's part of that cohort. It remains a buy. I really like them. Let's go to Craig in my home state of New Jersey. Craig.
2: Hey, Jim. How you doing tonight? All right. How are my you? My question is I'm good. My question is for Novacure. Yes. Uh, the company's had positive phase two trials for treating cancers, and now they're in phase three trials for treating brain metastases. Yes. Uh, the company's stock price has doubled in the last year. Would you consider this a buy after its recent uh, I, I was run speaking up, with some people who are intimately
1: involved with the stock and the company. It's had a great run. I think it has an amazing future. It's a $4 billion company. It makes just unbelievable products. I have seen them, sadly, firsthand, I am not walking away yet even after this run in Novacure. I think NVCR can still go higher. On an anniversary of catastrophic events, you tend to be gloomy in your analysis. I get that. But this show is about the resilience and about getting through things together. All mad money tonight. It's a company up a whopping 190% this year alone. Could the move at AMD continue? I'm sitting down with a bankable CEO. Then, how can the stock market continue its climb in the face of tariffs and what may end up being $467 billion of Chinese products? I'm giving my take. And when Toll Brothers reported at the end of the quarter, of the company sucks It serves the most since 2011. But with the stock giving back some of these gains since then, what should we be doing? What's our next move? I'm talking with the CEO of that great home builder. So stay with me
0: Support for this podcast comes from Goldman Sachs. Through Launch with GS, a $500 million investment strategy grounded in the belief that teams with diverse leadership drive stronger returns, Goldman Sachs remains committed to facilitating connections and increasing access to capital for women, Black, Latinx, and other diverse entrepreneurs. Learn more at gs.com slash launch with GS.
1: Let's talk about the greatest turnaround story in at least a generation. Let's talk about advanced micro-devices. For years, AMD was basically an also-ran semiconductor company. While Intel made the best processors and NVIDIA made the best graphics chips, AMD made cheaper, lower-quality alternatives. They were the semiconductor equivalent of those knockoff store-brand cereals, you know, the ones at the bottom shelf that come in a bag instead of a box. Needless to say, this was not a great business model, which is why AMD stock spent most of the last decade, a lost decade, trading in the very low single digits. Four years ago, the company was losing money and weighed down by debt with no real strategy to turn things around. So they brought in Dr. Lisa Su to take over as CEO, and she did the impossible. Not only did she turn AMD around, she turned it into arguably the best player in the space. She decided to invest heavily in making better chips, and it worked. Now AMD dominates the PC and the data center and the graphics markets, at least for new customers. They seem to be running circles around Intel. And that's how the stock has exploded higher from a buck and change three years ago to $10 in April to just above $30 today. The numbers here are absolutely incredible, and the future looks very bright as AMD continues to release terrific new products. But after this spectacular run, it's tripled in less than six months. we got to wonder if, if the stock can keep or It's just overheating. Now, earlier today, we got a chance to talk to Lisa Sue, the president and CEO of AMD, about what it is go- what's going on at this company I like to call her the miracle worker. Take a look. Lisa, you are a heroine to many people, in <laughs> part because when you came in, in October 2014, the stock was at three bucks. Now it's 10 times that. I don't care about today, tomorrow, the next day. I care about whether the turn is lasting and how it came about.
3: Well, Jim, so first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. And uh, it's been an incredible you know, couple of years for us. You know, for us, it was really about, um, you know, AMD always had great technology assets and it was really about how do we put those assets to work and really get the strategy and the execution right. And I truly believe you need both strategy and execution. Um, And so on the strategy side, it was really about choosing the right markets and knowing what we're really good at. And you know, the most interesting thing today is, you know, high performance computing is everywhere. You know, you need it in your PCs, you need it in gaming, you need it in the data center. And you know, we're good at high performance computing. We're one of the very few companies that are. Um, and then we really had to put together an execution engine. And so that's really been our focus over the last couple of years. Now,
1: one of the things I think that uh, has been mystifying Wall Street, but not our viewers, which are Main Street, Wall Street says there's no way that Intel can do poorly and AMD do well for a long time. But the fact is, is that this is a very big market. There's room for both.
3: You know, the, the thing that people need to understand is, you know, our market, when we say high-performance computing, it's a $75 billion TAN. $75 billion, and you need all kinds of computing. And so, you know, our belief is, you know, we put out great products, we work deeply with our customers, and we're going to provide value to consumers and enterprises um, all over. And so, yeah, we think this is a huge market, and um, there's opportunities for a lot of people.
1: High performance when it comes to PC high performance when it comes to gaming, high performance when it comes to data center. How did you get that to happen?
3: You know, when you look at these markets, you know, you really see that people need more computing horsepower. I mean, just think about gaming these days. I mean, double digit growth, right? Whether you're talking about game consoles, or you're talking about PC gaming, or you're talking about cloud gaming, All of these markets like um, higher computing power, and that's a great place for us to be.
1: Now, there would be a time where I felt and did feel when you were in the single digits that AMD didn't have the balance sheet to take on Intel, didn't have the balance sheet to take on NVIDIA. You fixed that first. That was tactical, and then you got strategic.
3: You know, we needed to do all of these things, right? Certainly the balance sheet was critical. You know, we decided to make the right investments. And, you know, technology is all about making the right choices. So where are we going to invest? Where are we not going to invest? Um, You know, at that time, three or four years ago, you know, it was, you know, mobile phones and tablets and um, IoT that were the sexy things. And we were like, hey, we know that those are good markets, but those are not AMD. And we focused on what we thought the future would would hold for us.
1: And it turns out those turned out to be a lot more commodity. You went proprietary. Proprietary had a higher valuation. That's why I think your stock can go up over the long term. Now, I know we're not talking about 29 versus 32, but the decision to go proprietary is secular, not cyclical.
3: That's right. I think the key is we got to provide value to our customers. You know, highly differentiated products, Products that span a lot of different applications and use cases, and you know, really, we have to stay at the bleeding edge, right? That's what makes you know, sort of, high-performance computing exciting. Is we need to keep pushing the envelope on our technology.
1: All right, bleeding edge. AMD didn't think that it could happen. Here's what people ask me, though. They don't want to know about Ryzen. The Ryzen chips are amazing. They don't want to know about <laughs> Ryzen's how Ryzen's you... done pretty well. Yes, though. they have. Okay. They're in all the major PC companies for the first time. Yes. You know
3: what they ask me? Who is Lisa Su? <laughs> Who is Lisa Su? Look, I'm an engineer. I grew up as an engineer. I love technology. In New York, I love technology. Um, You know, I really think that the interesting thing about semiconductors, Jim, is look, we're making decisions now that you won't see the outcome for three, four, or five years. And so look, we've made some good decisions. I mean, we made some good decisions on architecture. Uh, we made some good decisions on manufacturing process technology. You know, we're moving to um, the latest and greatest process technology, right. 7 nanometer. And um, I love seeing that. I love the fact that, you know, we're, we're trying to project the future. And, uh, you know, hopefully we make some good decisions.
1: Now, you have benefited from a slip in manufacturing at Intel. If Intel catches up, will you be able to go again, go forward again? Or can they actually get to par with you?
3: You know, we never count on our competition not doing well, all right? The competition is very, very strong. What we look at is there are some fundamental changes in the marketplace. Um, Moore's Law is changing. You know, it's not the same that manufacturing technology is progressing at the same pace. Um, We've decided to pick, you know, really good architectural decisions um, in terms of how we put our server chips together. And uh, we're also partnering with leading-edge manufacturing at uh, TSMC and so we believe, you know, you know, independent of what the competition can do, right. we know that we can keep our architecture going. And frankly, when we started, you know, we call our um, CPU architecture Zen. You know, right. we had a Zen ones, Zen twos, Zen three. We're not talking about Zen four and Zen five. And so it's it's a very strong roadmap that I'm very excited about. At the
1: same time, you're cognizant about what's going on in trade with China. You have done very well. You have a joint venture with China. Uh, amount of fret that you have about that.
3: Well, you know, we all need to be cognizant of what's happening in the market around trade in China. And, um, you know, certainly some of the tariffs add a bit of complexity. Uh, to, um, to our customers and to us, but we have a lot of manufacturing partners throughout the world, and so we're, we'll, we'll work through it, and we very much you know, want to keep our focus on leading-edge technology.
1: Okay, when I met you, the stock was uh, high single digits, low double digits, and you said to me, I shouldn't fall in love necessarily with NVIDIA. <laughs> How's that rivalry going?
3: You know, look, like I said, competition is good. Competition is good for everybody, um, no question that uh, there's a, a lot of need for GPUs in the marketplace. Frankly, GPUs is a great market. And I've, go, I, I've always said that there could be, you know, multiple winners in this market. So we are very, very focused on GPUs, um, graphics, both for right. gaming as well as for computing applications. And I think we're gonna grow in this market. This is forward.
1: amazing. I remember Wintel. Now I should be
3: thinking about Win AMD. You are Microsoft's partner. You know, we very, very much appreciate um, our partnership with all of our key customers. You know, Microsoft is a leader, uh, certainly in Windows. We're partnered with them in game consoles. I think we have a vision of where cloud computing is going, and we're working closely with them. But, you know, we also view part of our strength is that we can work with um, all customers in terms of, you know, cloud customers as well as PC customers, and we can differentiate for each one of them. I think that's what makes us unique is you know, we're working with both Sony and Microsoft on consoles, and they both have their specific you know, secret sauce that we're helping them do. So,
1: okay, One last question. Uh, do you ever sleep? I've emailed you it every <laughs> single hour.
3: You come back within one minute. I love what I'm doing. And so at the end of the day, I don't think you sleep either, by the way. So we're- But I'm not uh... CEO of AMD. (laughs) We have plenty of fun. And you know, the one thing I'd like to say though, Jim, is this is really just the beginning. I mean, we have a ton of work to do. Um, But it's a great place to be. You know, we're in great markets, and we just really have to, uh, you know, focus on the uh, market opportunity and execute.
1: Your humility is uh, stark, but I will say this. I've followed AMD since the 80s. This is the best it's ever been. I never thought AMD would get to this point. Your strategy, your tactics, your execution, remarkable.
3: Thank you very much, Jim.
1: It's Dr. Lisa Su. She's AMD's president and CEO. Congratulations on all you've done.
3: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
1: Have we finally become inured to all of the Chinese tariff talk? President Trump is now musing about slapping tariffs on $467 billion with the Chinese exports, nearly everything they sell here. And it's almost a certainty that China will retaliate. Yet the stocks of nearly every company in their crosshairs managed to rally today. So what the heck is going on? Have investors stopped fearing retaliation? Do they think our governments will just make a deal so these tariffs never go into effect? I mean, what's the logic here? I pose the question because aside from Caterpillar, pretty much every industrial with a lot to lose from a trade war saw its stock roar higher today and yesterday too. That includes Boeing. China buys roughly a quarter of their planes. Yet the stock game won three bucks. In fact, the only stocks that have really been hurt so far are the semiconductor names and the most, and most recently, Apple. Even then, many of the semis have still a good run for the year, while Apple stock vaulted five. Dollars today. <laughs> it's now up 32% since 2018 began. And look, the weakness in the semis has nothing to do with the tariffs hurting the business. They're not selling fewer chips. No, China blocked Qualcomm from acquiring NXP Semi on bogus antitrust grounds, and that made everyone want to pay less for semiconductor stocks. However, we'll soon find out if the Chinese want to quash all these deals, and not just the American ones. As just today, Renesis, a Japanese firm, offered to buy integrated devices technology for $6.7 billion. We often thought that was a, a rumored takeover target how can the markets be so complacent about china First, many American companies that do their manufacturing in China have a lot more flexibility than most people thought. President Trump was going to bring their businesses back to U- U- U.S., building factories. But Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, a bunch of other countries are all desperate for their business. That's why so many companies that source a lot of their stuff from China, like let's say a dollar general, a target, five below coals, go- they're going to do much better than people think. When the trade war continues to escalate, they can shift. The companies that buy from China are, are also they're just in good shape. But here's a good question. What about the companies that sell to China? Honeywell, Emerson, and United Technologies all do substantial business in the PRC. You'd expect them to get slammed if the trade war keeps escalating. Yet last week, Darius Damchek, the CEO of Honeywell, came on the show and made it very clear that he's not at all worried about his gigantic Chinese business. Why? Because what he makes in China stays in China, so it shouldn't be hit by tariffs from either side. That's a huge statement when you consider that China accounts for 70% of the new Honeywell growth. United Technology sells a huge number of elevators into China. It's the most important geography by far. But the company may be breaking itself up to a climate controls business and aerospace business and the elevators, which is Otis. Maybe China's not big enough to matter. Emerson is also very reliant on China for its growth. If the tariffs were a major concern, this stock would be going much lower, maybe hitting its low, not hitting its all-time high. How about possible boycotts? Look, not that long ago, it seemed like the Chinese government would encourage a subtle boycott of Starbucks. But now that Starbucks has partnered with Jack Ma of Alibaba to handle some key issues, that worry going, and the stock's going higher. A few weeks ago, they threatened to go after Apple. But you wouldn't know that from looking at Apple stock. Maybe investors are simply whistling past the graveyard. But when I look at this action, it makes me think that the trade war with China simply won't do that much damage to American companies. The stock market tends to be a very good forecasting machine. Right now, with the S&P 500 up 8% for the year, it seems to be predicting that the trade war with China is just not that big a deal. The other possibility, when you look at the strength in our market and the weakness in China's Shanghai index down nearly 20%, these averages might be forecasting that the Chinese government will blink. I've said it before, China has a lot more to lose from this trade war than we do. In the end, that might bring them to the table, even if it makes the Communist Party lose face, something that the media has told us they won't let happen. But maybe, just maybe, they have no choice. Let's go to Carmen in Connecticut. Please, Carmen.
3: Hey, Jim. Thank you for everything you do for all of us. I honestly learned something new every single night watching you. Oh, thank you.
1: you. That's what I'm trying to do. do. I'm trying to teach every night.
3: Every night, and I do listen, and I do learn, and I am doing much better every day, thank oh, you. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. thank you. So so appreciative. Uh, my question is about Alibaba. You know, I know that it's got to hit a lot of tailwinds between the tariffs and, right. and Trump and everything else and Jack Ma leaving, but the earnings are good, and the guidance is good, and I don't want to fool around with it and start selling it and picking it up again. I'm inclined to hold it for the long run, and I'd like your advice. All right, Carmen,
1: the key phrase is long run, because right now I'm not recommending any Chinese stocks because this trade war just keeps escalating, and it just makes it more and more difficult to own. Longer term, I think you've got the best, and I think it will do well. But as long, and thank you for those kind comments, but understand, it ain't going to turn on a dime. Let's go to Anne in Indiana. Anne.
0: Jimbo, thanks for taking my call. Calling about Tellurian with the tariffs and the approvals they're waiting on. Am I too early? Is it too No, just to hold on to it. I now, do? this is
1: Sharif Suki's company. Uh, he's the chairman. Uh, there is plenty of demand for our natural gas. He's got a long-term plan. He was bankable before at $8. bucks. he will be bankable again at 8 bucks. Daniel in California, Daniel.
2: Kramer, this is Daniel from California. Hey,
1: hey, what's up?
2: Hey, what's up? What is your take on TPI Composites? Stock ticker TPIC. Stock rallied 36% year-to-date for this small-cap wind energy company with manufacturing facilities in Mexico, China, Turkey, and us. How would this stock be affected by tariffs and trade war? A specific politician from Texas showed strong support in wind energy, even though other sources of renewable energy may not be as favorable with our current administration. Well, you
1: know, we remember we talked to AAP about the about that uh, big wind catcher program that they had, and it was scuttled by Texas uh, uh, by, uh, by Texas interest in natural gas. Let's look at this TPI composite. I think it sounds like a very interesting company. We'll make a judgment for you rather than just say, hey, it looks fine, because that's not what we do on this show. All right, will China be the first to blink? If stock markets are a decent barometer, it sure looks like it. Much more mad money at it. How can a rate hike impact the housing market? I'm sitting down with the number one luxury home builder to find out. Then NXP Semiconductor's CEO is joining me for the first time since his planned acquisition with Qualcomm fell through on what I just said are bogus antitrust issues. What's next for the company? I've got the exclusive. And all your calls, rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lighting Round. So stick with Kramer. haters going to hate. When the is really out of favor on the Wall Street fashion show, and I mean just totally despised beyond all reason, the haters will never let the facts get in the way of their preferred negative story. Right now, we're seeing a textbook example in the home builders. The conventional wisdom here says that the housing business is a dead man walking. Between rising interest rates and higher commodity prices for things like lumber, steel, aluminum, every home builder is supposed to be in big trouble. And hey, I get it. The hedge fund playbook says you need to sell these stocks when the Fed is tightening. But there's just one problem with the thesis. The home builders refuse to play ball. We Keep hearing that they're roadkill, but they keep reporting phenomenal numbers. Take Toll Brothers, the huge luxury home builder. When Toll reported three weeks ago, it shot the lights out, delivering a monster 23% earnings beat off of a dollar or three basis, with higher than expected sales up 27% year over year. The quarter was so magnificent that the hated stock popped 13% on the news. But most investors simply do not believe Toll can keep delivering. That's why the stock has given back about half those gains as the bearish narrative has reasserted itself. These levels tolls down an astounding 24% for the year. Trading just eight times earnings, insanely cheap valuation, unless you genuinely believe that the estimates are way too high, meaning Toll won't be able to make the numbers. However, if Toll can simply hit its own forecast, the future looks so bright. Can they? Let's go straight to the horse's mouth with Doug Yearly, the CEO of Toll Brothers, get a better read on the general state of the housing market and on Toll itself. Mr. Yearly, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Doug. How have you been? Have a seat. Doing great. All right, Doug. Thanks for uh, having me. I I have to admit I'm confused. Uh, You've got record third quarter co- contracts. Millennials are coming back in the market. People have wealth in their existing home. We have an amazing employment pattern. Uh, tell me what I'm missing.
4: You're not missing anything, except you didn't mention consumer confidence, right. which is the fourth prong there, right. which is also um, very high. So we're doing great. Um, we love our niche. The luxury end of the market right. is very strong. Uh, there, there's more and more households that make $100,000 or more, uh, which is our business. Our loan to value ratio of our buyers 67%. I'm it's thinking, down. It's I'm, down I'm for where it is. You put to that
1: out, all morning, I heard the bad lending's coming back. And I look at your numbers, it's just the opposite. What do you have? 23% of people paying cash?
4: It's been 20%, and, and it just jumped up to 25%. It's unbelievable. It was 70% LTV. It's now down to 67 right. Mortgage rates? They are lower today than they were four months ago. The commodity costs? you got under control. Lumber's down big. And in the last seven months, mortgage rates are only up one-eighth of one percent. We're still sub-five. Right. It's a great rate. Millennials are coming out. Now, we know they're, they're, they're marrying later, so they're buying homes later. Right. But that also means they're wealthier when they buy, uh, which means some of them will be able to afford our homes. If not, they're going to buy the homes from the, our buyers because right. we're obviously – while, while we're not selling the starter home that's in our food chain, we need that to be healthy. Uh, and, and there's just not an overhang of supply. We're not over specking in the we're industry.
1: We're not over building at all. We're at still all. well under, right? We're well under. It's still a housing shortage, but you guys happen to have the right land. Maine and Maine. That, that's what we do. We buy
4: land at the corner of Maine and Maine. That's been our business. We tend to compete against the local builder. They're not nearly as well capitalized as we are, so we have an advantage in the land buying. Uh, we have a great
1: brand uh, and we have a great, you know, national geographic footprint. So Wait, uh, I'm very happy with the business. But you are very transparent in all your numbers. You all has been since I first met you. You said that California's gotten a little soft, and you said the very expensive properties in the uh, in New York City are, are not moving as well. It's almost as if people are letting those control. How little a part of the whole mosaic are those two areas?
4: So California is an important market for us. Right. We have about 25 percent of our business out in California. It was a, tr- a strategic move to move west over the last five to ten years California is not as hot as it was last summer it's still one of our top markets last summer was very odd in that we sold more homes in the summer in California than in the spring and everybody that follows the industry knows that the spring season is when most homes are sold so when you look back to 06 if you look back two years ago our numbers are up significantly. It was just, last year was an aberration. But the California market is still doing very well. We have terrific locations. So I'm, I'm thrilled with our California operation. And I think looking forward, it's, it's in great shape. Well, in uh, New York, you mentioned? Yes. Some of the very expensive units in New York City have certainly slowed. Right. We have refocused on the $2,000 a square foot and less locations and price point, which also means smaller units, Um, And Hoboken and Jersey City, which are now at $1,000 off the water and $1,400 waterfront, they're outperforming what we ever expected.
1: Now, I would not be as bullish if it weren't for the fact that you are as bullish as demonstrated by your buyback. I remember years and years and years. You never bought back any stock, but
4: you're in there almost every day. So we, year to date, we're about nine and a half months in, um, excuse me, ten and a half months in, we have bought back over $400 million of our stock, which is about 7 percent, plus or minus, of our outstanding shares. And uh, uh, price to book, have I ever seen it this low? We're 1.1 times book, and we're trading at 8 times consensus EPS.
1: I mean, I remember when, when KB Homes was that, and I said it was going to double and a triple. I mean, it's just not right. There's something wrong here. Yes, that's my view. It drives me crazy. When you reported that quarter and Bob was on the call and I just said, okay, here it is. We're done going down. And it didn't happen. Uh, And I'm very proud of you guys because, you know, I'm Philadelphian. And I still don't get it, but one day it'll come back. We just keep doing what we're doing, doing, which is
4: grow, buy land in the best locations, make really smart decisions, build this great
1: brand. We're so proud of
4: our brand. It's very
1: high listed on the Fortune. On well, in that incredible list, you're in we the top are 10.
4: top ten, most admired brand in the world. Right. And you know what's? This is the largest premium for a new home to a used home that I've seen in my 28 years, and oh. it's because the architecture is better. Uh, the options you can put into the home are better. More and more people want new than ever before, and we're really benefiting from that. Well, I'm
1: going with you. That's Doug Yearly, CEO <laughs> of Toll Brothers. At TOL, the stock is down almost 25%. Some of these things just aren't making any sense to me. They have bunnies back here for the break. It is time. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski day! It's over the night round, Chris. Let's start with Chris and your Chris. Booyah, Jim. Wanted to ask your thoughts on Cypress Semiconductors. Sentiment around semis in general, a buying
0: opportunity, and you how know, would I, you compare it to All day
1: today, I sat around Chris and said, why isn't CY up on this great IDTI bid? They are very similar. I think it is a bye-bye-bye. Okay, now I gotta go to Jay in New York. Jay.
2: Professor Kramer, thank you for taking my call. Of All course. Our small investors. My question is on Kemet, symbol K-E-M,
1: Kemet Corporation. You know, it's a capacitor stock. Capacitors are, even though they've got some proprietary technology, are way too commodity-oriented for me, so I'm gonna pass on it. Jesse in Virginia, Jesse.
2: Who Booyah, Jim. Thanks we for are. taking my call. My question, or my stock is Lido's, ticker symbol LDOS. I've yeah, and national security, has, those stocks have $2. not
1: been working. If you want to do national security, I think the stocks have peaked. I would go after Raytheon, my travel trust owns it. We're going to talk about it on our Thursday club call at Plus.com, But it is a very hard stock to own and a very difficult crypto. Let's go to Mike in Florida. Mike.
2: Hi, how are you doing?
1: I am Tim. doing well, Mike. How about you?
2: Pretty Good. Listen, I'm more. I'm concerned about Skywalk Solutions.
1: Yeah, people That's feel that they're in the crosshairs of the Chinese and that they can't do any acquisitions or actually be acquired because of the way that the Chinese shut down the Qualcomm bid for NXP. It just can't seem to go higher, even after reporting a great quarter. I have to wait to see the stock bottom. I can't get in front of that freight train. Whoa. Let's go to Sai in Texas. Cy. Booyah from Austin, Texas, Jim. Booyah! Uh, Ameris Corporation, do I hook them profits or do I go long horns on this one? No, no, this is a really good company. I've got to tell you, we should be. This is one of those biopharma companies that is in the sweet spot. Uh, It is like, you know, Illumina is the best analog. I think it's a really good situation. How about Eric in Florida? Eric! Jimbo? A hearty, healthy, happy New Year. Booyah, booyah, booyah. Same to you and everyone else, and thank you so much. How can I help?
2: Quickly, you had the CEO of Zora on a few weeks ago. You liked what he said. I liked what he said. I bought the stock.
1: But remember, we said the stock could come in, and when it came in, you had to buy it, and that's exactly how I feel. I feel that uh, Tzu, I Look, is just remarkable. We are in a subscription economy. I do think that people should buy the stock. It has come down a lot, and it's the right price. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the lightning round.
0: The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
1: Okay, what the heck does NXP Semiconductors need to do before its stock can bottom? This company's had a very turbulent year. In 2016, NXP agreed to sell itself to Qualcomm. But then this spring, as part of the escalating trade dispute with China, the Chinese regulators blocked the deal on what I regard as fabricated antitrust grounds. Finally, in July, the two companies gave up. Since then, NXP has been trying to get its groove back as an independent company, but Wall Street remains skeptical. Now, I like NXP. These guys have a ton of exposure to the connected car, the Internet of Things, and what's known as the near-field communications, the technology that enables things like Apple Pay. Yet the stock keeps getting clobbered. Some of that's because the latest quarter was just okay. Then today, the company held an analyst meeting that I thought would turn things around. Instead, the stock sold off. It was down more than 4 bucks. Why? The one thing that really jumps out at me here is that NXP told us they repurchased $3.75 billion worth of stocks since July. that's an insanely voracious buyback, given this is a 31 billion dollar company. However, during that time, uh, uh, the stock had slipped from 98 down to 93, uh, and before falling to 89 and a half today. In short, the buyback doesn't seem to be helping—at least not yet. Nevertheless, I think this company has a great story to tell. So let's take a closer look with Rick Clemmer, the president and CEO of NXP Semiconductors. Learn more about how this company is doing where it's headed. Mr. Clemmer, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. Have Good a seat. You. Thank you. All right, Rick. Uh, When I always talk to Qualcomm, and Qualcomm told me the solution that we have to being just a cell phone company is we're going to own the connected car. We're going to own the connected car because we're going to buy NXP Semi. Somehow that's become the prevailing
2: storyline. Is that a correct storyline when it comes to what you do? it is absolutely so we're really focused on autonomous driving how to make driving safer so if you look at level through level 2 and 3 of autonomous driving you know it's about 60 65% of the total semiconductor content of a complete autonomous vehicle which you know isn't going to happen for 5 or 6 right. years but if we can do through level 2 or 3 and make driving safer then we think that's really a play for us. So, for example, in Radar, we're the number one company in Radar, designed in, in 10 of the top 10 car companies. Wow. So that's really our focus, is how we can facilitate things and make driving safer.
1: Entertainment has also been something. We look at the entertainment portion of a car, which grows every year. You're deeply involved in that.
2: We are. We have our i.mx platform that really has been a leader associated with that space. We we have design wins now for the next four or five years, really at a high level. Uh, we are kind of for the mid-tier and the low-end cars, the choice associated with entertainment.
1: Okay, Rick, did anything happen since October, you know, since the 2016 bid that has made it so that people feel that? You, perhaps, are no longer exactly involved, and I'm including the fact that you did sell $400 million
2: worth of stock, which wasn't a bad idea. We thought that NXP was done. You know, I had to sell because of tax reasons. I had a tax situation that was changing at the end of November in the Netherlands where I was going to go – from a special tax ruling to a full taxpayer, 52%. And so I had to sell at least a, a share of my position, okay. you know, and I moved part of that to a trust to be able to uh, be sure that I can make donations in the future. But as a well, long time has kind of been
1: able to go on. Maybe you can start buying back stock.
2: I actually have been doing that you since have, July. I have. Right? And my CFO has as well. So we both have bought stock personally. In addition to, we set up an equity program for our top management to be sure we locked them in for three years so that we could get to the next level for the company. Is
1: there a reason to think that once you finish this buyback that you're done in buying back stock?
2: Not at all. And we're going to generate a lot of cash. You know, if we grow 50% faster than the market, which we have complete confidence we will do, and generate 31 to 33% operating income, we're going to generate a ton of cash. My CFO talked about that today yes. in our analyst meeting. And if you combine that with going to a two times leverage, which we feel very comfortable with, you could have $10 to $12 billion available for stock repurchase or whatever is appropriate to return cash third, to shareholders.
1: We're a third of the company. You know, that's one of the reasons why, Rick, I was quite surprised. I think that the story is an Internet of Things story. I think it is a near-field communications. It's payments. Payments are going nuts. You can look at Square, PayPal, it doesn't matter. But you're the facilitator behind these. So what am I missing?
2: You know, there is nothing, uh, you know, I talked to all of the investors that are at the conference today. Right. No one could explain why our stock it was. was. It The only thing that we were trying to take was maybe your comments earlier today about the car industry going away. Now, the problem is, is when you think about it, you know, the car industry in China is 60% larger than the car industry in U.S., the car industry in Europe is 22% larger than the car industry in the U.S. So looking at Silicon Valley number of cars may not be the absolute best indicator as to what's going on in the car yeah, industry. And because you
1: are a worldwide company. And you, totally. You touch now, you've got here something that also reminds me that if you want Internet of Things, it may be NXP, that's it's the right choice.
2: Absolutely. So what we're trying to do is take advantage of how we really emerged on the Internet of Things. You know, we talked about it when we met... two and a half years ago or so. But now what we've done is try to put more color around it. So what we see is the internet things really being created through the cloud and and really the benefits associated with the cloud. But to be able to take advantage of those benefits, you need to do some edge processing. And so we have a kit here that sells for $50 for companies to just go experiment with Internet of Things to go try it out. But what we're trying to do is do the pre-processing at the edge before it goes to the cloud and then be able to take the actions from the cloud from there so that we can do that. So our microcontroller platforms, going to applications processors, and in the two years we've developed a crossover product that has a lot of the functionality of applications Ryan. processor at a microcontroller cost, which yeah. opens up the market significantly. One last question. It,
1: it, do you agree with my analysis that there was no real reason, antitrust wise, for Qualcomm to be blocked from
2: buying? There was no real reason. You know, we met with the Chinese. Any issue that they raised, there were remedies that were put right. forth associated with it just
1: unbelievable. All right. Well, look, I think, yeah, I thought your stock should going gone up on the presentation. Boy, was I ever wrong. But I'm not going to be wrong for long. That's Rick Clemmers, the CEO of NXP Semiconductors. This is one cheap stock. You heard about what the buyback can do. You heard about the insider buying. I like everything I heard. Mad Money's back after the break. Thanks, Rick. I have a simple request. I want you to come to New York, and I want you to go to the museum. It talks about what happened on 9-11. It's very easy. It's accessible. Get tickets early and go. Bring your family. Do not expect to do anything else that day. You will not be able to. It is that difficult. But you need to know and remember and learn. Like i like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'd find it just for you right here on Bunny. I'm Jim Kramer and I will see you tomorrow.